You can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, today we're going to begin in verse 43 and finish the chapter together. We're in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. He's going from Syria to the island of Cyprus to what is now modern-day Turkey and then up into the city of Pisidian Antioch in the region of Galatia. Once they arrived, they kind of did their normal practice of going to a synagogue and they'd sit down, listen to the two readings from the law and the prophets, and then the floor would be opened. And Paul was invited to speak, and so he stood up. And we looked at the sermon he preached last week in verses 13 through 42. We saw how he began by establishing common ground with the Jews there in the synagogue. He established the common ground, their common history of God's saving acts, the incredible acts of provision and deliverance that the Lord had done for his people. And he goes through all of these. And to these, he would have received a hearty approval. But he had to use this common ground to show them something greater. He couldn't stay there. Or he needed to show them someone greater, and that's what Paul went on to do. He spoke about the Lord Jesus and the fulfillment of all the promises of God in him. You know, as we sang earlier, he is the true and better Adam who was tempted by Satan, never yielded, never sinned. He's the true and better Isaac, father's joy and only son who offered up his life. He's the true and better Moses who, like Moses, parts something, but it's the veil and brings us into the Holy of Holies that we might be in the presence of the Father. And then the true and better David, he's the champion who fights for us and will reign as king forever. This is what Paul does. He walks them through the Old Testament and shows how Christ is the fulfillment. And then tells them that there is forgiveness in his name and in any who would believe. So that's where we were last week. What we're going to look at this week is the various responses. And really, when I say various responses, there's really only two. There, there are two responses to the gospel. Either belief or unbelief. Jesus himself says, you're either with me or you are against me. There are only two. And we see both of those displayed in our text. And we'll look at them in a moment. But before we do, let's pray. Father God, would you be with us during this time as we open your word? Would you speak through it? Would you speak through its preaching? Father, there is nothing special about me, nothing worthy about me. Father, it is your word and the working of your spirit through it that brings life and light and knowledge. And so we ask that you would work during this time in the hearts of your people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 13, beginning, we'll begin in verse 42. 
As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. So we're looking at the responses of the people to Christ preached. And initially, what do we see? There's curiosity. There's intrigue. They're hungering to hear more. They, they beg that Paul and Barnabas would come back and talk more about this next Sabbath. No doubt. There was a line, people lined up to come talk to Paul and Barnabas. There's no telling how many people they spoke to. Would have been a busy week. The Holy Spirit was working. Well, the next Sabbath, what does Luke tell us? Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, Maybe Luke is using a bit of hyperbole there, saying that the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. There would have been a lot of people. In, in my notes, I thought, what would it take for us in Corinth? What would it take for us to react this way? What would it take to gather the whole city together for something? I was trying to think. And then that question was answered last night when I went to the rodeo. <laughs> There's a line of traffic across 45 stretching all the way to the visitor center. Uh, we wound up parking at the police station. Almost the whole city came out uh, for the rodeo. Well, that's the response here, a very positive response. Many people have gathered to hear Paul preach. But then there's also a a negative response. See in verse 45, 
that the Jews saw the crowds and they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. They saw the crowds filled with jealousy and began contradicting Paul's teaching. Now, why were they upset? And there were lots of reasons. Of course, they wouldn't have appreciated how Paul had spoken about their spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, the ones who were blind to the Messiah when he was standing right before them and they, they had him killed. They sought the death of an innocent, guiltless man. They wouldn't have appreciated that. They also wouldn't have liked the comments he made about the law back in verses 38 and 39 of this chapter where he pointed that through Christ comes the forgiveness of sins. It is belief in him, not the law of Moses, that frees you from your guilt. His righteousness freely credited to you and not your righteousness is what enables you to stand in the presence of God blameless. These would have rubbed them the wrong way. He's tearing down their leaders. He's tearing down their traditions. But there's a main reason, I think, that we're told in this text. Jealousy. Now, when I read that, the first thing I think is jealous of what? Well, Jealous of the spotlight, they want the attention, the power, the influence. Paul is taking that from them, but, but I don't think that is it. I think they're jealous of something else, just something even deeper than that. Remember, Pisidian Antioch is a Gentile city. There were some Jews there, of course. There was a synagogue, but there were a lot more Gentiles These crowds of Gentiles have come out to hear the word of the Lord. And here is Paul talking to both Jew and Gentile and talking in a way like he is including the Gentiles in their family history. He's including the Gentiles in the glorious promises of God. He's not telling the Gentiles that they have to become good Jews before they can be received by God. I mean, I'm sure they didn't mind if some of the Gentile God-fearers came to the synagogue. They could come to the synagogue and sit in the back and observe. But, but now you're including them in God's chosen people. You're making them equal with us. It was offensive. You are splitting our spiritual inheritance with these pagans. You can see why they began to contradict Paul's words and to revile him. They're undermining the gospel. They're speaking falsely about the Lord Jesus. They're impugning Paul's motives, and things began to escalate. And there's that word, they reviled him. Another translation for this is to blaspheme. To blaspheme, to speak evil to knowingly and willingly slander or profane that which is sacred. That's what what they're doing. We see the same word used 
Do you remember in Luke's gospel when Jesus is being interrogated? He's in custody. He's being mocked and beaten. And at one point, they put a blindfold on his face so that he can't see. And then they begin to strike his face and say, if you're a prophet, tell us who is the one striking you. And then Luke writes, they said many other things against Jesus, blaspheming him. That's the word that is used here. It gives you an idea of the animosity that Paul and Barnabas are now facing. And yet, they aren't cowed. They respond boldly. We're told that they spoke out boldly in verse 46. And they say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Now, why is that? Why would Paul speak to them first? We just think, who did Christ come to? Christ come to the Greeks? To the Romans? To the Spaniards? To the Galatians? No, he came to his people, the children of Israel. So that all the promises of God might be fulfilled. God had promised this one people over and over again to send them a Messiah. And he does. So Paul and Barnabas are going to these synagogues, making sure the children of Abraham hear that God's promise to their father, Abraham, has been kept. We see Paul, he speaks of this in Romans 1.16. He talks about the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. And then he says, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. We can see when Jesus in Acts 1.8 gives his commission to his disciples. He tells them to begin in Jerusalem and then to go out to the end of the earth. We can see that this word, this message comes to Israel first, but it is not exclusively for Israel. It's for the whole world. But they won't receive it. They thrust it aside. And Paul says, judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. And because of that, we are turning to the Gentiles. You know, this is a... This is a dramatization, a real-life dramatization of... Well, dramatization probably isn't the right word. It is, it is a real-life picture of one of the parables that Jesus gives. Remember the parable of the great banquet? I, I, I'm going to read it to you. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, Ah, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets 
and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. We're seeing this play out. The word is brought to them in this synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And they've thrust it aside, make excuses. They want nothing to do with it. And so now the invitation is going out to everyone else. The poor, crippled, lame, blind, those Gentiles, they will be the ones who feast with the Lord at this banquet. Now, the sending out of those invitations to the banquet, that was the Jews' job to do, but they weren't doing it. Paul quotes in verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God's people were to be lamps to the rest of the world. They were to bring the word of salvation to the ends of the earth, but they weren't doing it. So Paul is turning to the Gentiles. Well, what was the Gentiles' reaction to this? We see in verse 48, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So we have the Jews respond in unbelief and the Gentiles respond in belief. Now, where did that belief come from? Was it simply that the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch were better people than the Jews? Were they more moral people, more righteous people? Were they more virtuous than the Jews present? What's the difference? We see at the end of verse 48. The Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh Uh-oh. Here is that, air quotes, problematic teaching that we Presbyterians get in so much trouble over with some of our friends this issue of the doctrine of election, which is simply that those who believe are those who are appointed to eternal life by God. Now, as you are well aware, this is not the majority report in our city. This is not even, I would say, the majority report in evangelicalism Instead, most people will take these words and they'll try to figure out a way to rearrange them. Instead of saying, those appointed to eternal life believed, they will say, those who believed were appointed to eternal life. Does that make sense? Instead of those appointed to eternal life believed, they will say, those who believed 
were appointed to eternal life. And this looks like, you know, I, I became a Christian. It was my choice. I said the prayer. I responded to the invitation. It was my decision that led to my conversion. And sure, God opened the way. He gave me free will to, to use one of Wesley's terms. Through prevenient grace, he raised me to the point where I had complete free will to make this decision. But ultimately, again, I'm still, this is still the opposing view. Ultimately, the reason that I am a Christian and my neighbor is not is because I exercised my free will and chose Christ and my neighbor didn't. Or you may have heard something to the effect of God looked down the corridor of history and saw who would choose him, and so he chose them. So many people hold to that view that those who believe are appointed to eternal life, but that's not what the text says. I'll remind you, Luke the author of Acts, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. From all eternity, God the Father decreed that these Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch would hear his word preached and would believe. And I'm already in trouble. So I might as well go ahead and quote John Calvin. Calvin says, It is not the people who were well disposed to the gospel who believed, but those God had appointed in his eternal plan. Since the whole human race is blind and stubborn, those faults remain fixed in our nature until they are corrected by the grace of the Spirit. And that only comes from election. Two people, Calvin continues, may hear the same teaching together, yet one is willing to learn and the other persists in obstinacy. They do not differ in nature, but God illumines one and not the other. Our Heavenly Father invites everyone to faith by the external human voice, but He effectually calls by His Spirit only those He has decided to save. Now, what does this do? What does this show us? One huge thing is that we have absolutely zero things we can boast in. Calvin says, Now if God's election by which he ordains us to life is the cause of faith and salvation, nothing remains for worthiness or merits. We're saved by grace through faith alone. This is not your own doing, a gift of God, not the result of works, so that we may not boast. You see, the Gentiles weren't better than the Jews. You aren't better than your neighbor. 
And it's not, it's, it's not that you're a better person and made a better decision, and so that's why you're a believer and they aren't. You see, this belief is going to take from you any residual pride, any boasting in yourself, and we are left simply boasting in the grace of God. You know, Paul, I just quoted Ephesians 2, earlier in Ephesians 2, he writes that we are by nature children of wrath, spiritually dead. And how do spiritually dead people make spiritually dead decisions? The reason we're saved is that God has worked in our hearts and has transferred his people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Well, what's a common response to this that you'll hear maybe engaging with your Baptist friends you love very much well if, if that's true but then there's just no reason to do evangelism at all if God is going to do this why do evangelism well that's interesting because Luke mentions the doctrine of election right smack dab in the middle of a passage on evangelism Apparently, these two can go together. We remember that God appoints not only the ends, God appoints the means. God appointed that these Gentiles would believe, and he also appointed how they would hear. Paul and Barnabas would get on a boat. They would sail across the Mediterranean. They would hike up a dangerous mountain road to Pisidian Antioch, and they would preach the gospel. God ordained that as well. I'd like to make a bold statement. And it's that those who believe in this doctrine make the most effective evangelists. I'll tell you why. Not saying if you don't believe this, you can't be an evangelist. You're saying this will make you a more effective evangelist. James Boyce points this out in his commentary. Listen to this. Suppose it does not depend on God. Suppose it depends on you. Suppose people are saved because you are eloquent or because you have the right answers or because you happen to be in the right place at the right time, entirely apart from God's election. If this is true, it means that if you do not have the right answers, If you are not in the right place, if you do not present the gospel in just the right way, then these people will perish and it will be your fault. Who wants to live under that burden? No wonder we're scared to open our mouths and talk to people about Jesus. I don't know enough. What if they ask a question I don't have the answer to? What if I say something wrong? So we don't say anything. If I mess something up, it's all over. But what if you believed that God has appointed some for eternal life and not one of those will be lost? Your job and my job is not to be perfect. It's not to have all the answers. It's not to be a masterful defender of the faith. The burden of perfection 
in evangelism is not on us. This is a wonderful relief to me. I don't have to stand up here and hit a home run sermon every week. I'm reminded Charles Spurgeon was converted by a bad sermon. Not a heretical sermon, just a bad sermon. Just like, eh, he missed this week. That's what Spurgeon was converted under. But we put this burden on ourselves, thinking that it's all, it all depends on us. Our job is to be faithful, to open our mouth, to tell the truth about Jesus and what he has done and what that means for lost sinners. We just tell the truth. And we trust the rest to him. You know, if, if we do that, you know, evangelism is not this great burden upon us where we're scared we're going to mess up. It becomes a joy. And by the way, this idea of election, this is my last point on election, it's completely in line with everything else we've seen in the text that we looked at last week. I mean, you remember the, the history that Paul gave in his sermon. I'll briefly go through it. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made the Hebrews great in Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt. God put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. God destroyed the nations of Canaan and gave Canaan to them as an inheritance. God gave them judges. He gave them kings. He brought them a savior, Jesus, as promised. And God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what we've already seen in Acts 13. And for some reason, it is very easy for us to believe that God did all that. But when it comes to our own salvation, we have a hard time believing that we're saved because he appointed it. I wonder why that might be. I lied, there's one last thing. For some of you anxious souls who might read this and say, how do I know if I've been appointed to eternal life? How do I know? It's easy. Do you believe in Christ? Are you resting upon him alone for your salvation? That's evidence of the work of God. I mean, all of those other verses we love in Scripture are still true. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. If you believe in Him, you have life. I've got to wrap up. We're looking at the responses to the gospel. We've seen belief. We've seen unbelief. The Gentiles believed and the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region like yeast through a lump of dough. There's also unbelief. The the Jews, verse 50, incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So you have leaders in the city and women of high standing who are opposed to Paul and Barnabas. I'll say women of high standing who want something done, they get it done. 
the leaders are all opposed or joined together in their opposition. And I'll come back next week as we, as we talk about their next stop in Iconium. We'll come back to this idea of shaking the dust off your feet. I ran out of time this week, but I want to make sure we have plenty of time. But in seeing this response of disbelief from the people, I want that to be a segue into our hymn that we're going to close with. Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Because we see that even though they are opposed and they are forcibly removed and they have to shake the dust off of their feet and go on to the next place, they're still filled with joy. Why? Everything else can be taken away. But they still were filled with the Holy Spirit. To quote the first stanza of what we're about to sing. Jesus, I my cross have taken. All to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought or hoped, or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let's pray together. Father God, would your word continue today to bring life into the hearts of your people. Father, I, uh, it is my desire that every person would be filled with a knowledge of the truth and would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we ask for you to work, and we ask that you would assist us and spurn us on to be faithful, that we might be the means by which you bring a sinner to life in Christ. Help us to not be afraid of knowing the right words, having all the right answers, getting something wrong. Lord, would we see our sovereign Lord and would we trust in him and be willing to be used. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.